Welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victim. And what better um, way to um, illustrate that than with slave insurrections and slave rebellions. And this weekend in New Orleans, Louisiana, um, Dred Scott uh, is has organized with other supporters and artists to have a reenactment of the largest slave rebellion in U.S. history. Um, Charles uh, Deslones, uh, Gilbert, uh, Kwamana, Jessamine, Marie Rose, and some others of the uh, this uh, historic. Uh, Slave revolt um, happened in uh, January of 1811, and uh, and so they're going to be oh hundreds, hundreds of um, people of African descent and indigenous descent dressed in period costumes, um, gathering uh, in the location where this historic uh, rebellion took place, and marching you know those 28 miles into uh, New Orleans. Um, uh, and uh, celebrating the victory at Congo Square on Saturday, um, I guess or evening. <laughs> so I had an interview with um, Dred Scott, um, uh, wonderful uh, artist, and um, yeah, and and we are so looking forward to um, to experiencing and seeing this. I'm actually going to be headed that way a little bit later on this morning. So let me read you a little bit of information, and you can uh, find out uh, more about this uh, reenactment at slave-revolt.com. And uh, if you are in New Orleans area and you want to participate, it's not too late. There are rehearsals today, Wednesday, and tomorrow, Thursday. Um, we are going to be wearing costumes. I don't know if with regards to that, if they're still sewing. So, um, yeah, if you're interested in joining uh you know, the rebellion, definitely visit slave-revolt.com. So the Slave Rebellion reenactment is a community-engaged artist performance and film production that on November 8th and 9th will reimagine the German Coast Uprising of 1811, which took place on the River Parishes just outside of New Orleans. 
envisioned and organized by artist Dred Scott and documented documented by filmmaker John Akunfra, Slave Rebellion Reenactment will animate the, a suppressed history of people with an audacious plan to organize and seize Orleans territory to fight not just for their own emancipation, but to end slavery. It is a project about freedom. And if you know this artist at all, all of his work is a query about African liberation and freedom. The artwork will involve hundreds of reenactors in a period-specific clothing marching for two days covering 26 miles. The reenactment, the culmination of a period of organizing and preparation, will take place upriver from New Orleans in the locations where the 1811 revolt occurred. The uh, exurban communities and industry that have replaced the sugar plantations will be its backdrop. The reenactment will be an impressive and startling sight. Hundreds of black reenactors, many on horses, flags flying, and 19th century French colonial garments singing in Creole and English to African drumming. A key element of slave revolts was the organizing of the uprising by small groups of trusted individuals, clandestinely plotting with others in small cells. Mirroring this structure, slave revolt reenactment will initiate several recruitments and organizing meetings of multiple small groupings of people to prepare the reenactment, reenacted uprising. Extending the artwork's performative and reenactment of history, the meetings will take the form of conversations about why people choose to participate, about others they might involve, and why this history is important in contemporary society. The self-organization of slave rebels reenactors is an essential part of the work. And uh, the artist Dred Scott is going to be a part of, you know, this rebellion, and so he will be marching with others. Yeah, I'm so excited. Um, there will be limited fighting during the 1811 rebellion. There was limited fighting during the 1811 rebellion. So in contrast to many war reenactments, much of the slave rebellion reenactment will be a procession with only occasional skirmishes. The procession will be jarringly out of place as they advance past neighborhoods, strip malls, and, of course, and oil refineries. This historic anomaly will form a cognitive dissonance for viewers, opening space for people to rethink long-held assumptions. And uh, I mentioned already, um, you know, one of the key organizers, uh, Charles Dessalons uh, and um, others, and they were marching alongside, um, you know, uh, other many other enslaved people, and they are truly our unsung heroes. Their vision, if known about more widely, would inspire many. Their rebellion is a profound what-if story. It had a small but real chance of succeeding. What would that have meant for the United States and world history? Understanding that the past was not predetermined opens the, poss opens the ability for people to dream what-if for the future. We hope that this project, that's the uh, slave Rebellion Reenactment organizers, Dred Scott and others, hope this project helps people of all races broaden their vision of what is possible. Um, so Slave Rebellion Reenactment builds on Dred Scott's performance, Dred Scott, the Dred Scott decision of um, uh, his, his work um, 2012 at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, where Dred Scott decision looked at 
America's Democracy Foundation in Slavery. The Slave Rebellion reenactment shifts focus from the roots of America to the strivings of people fighting to be free of those roots. An army from the past forged of descendants of enslaved Africans will collide with the present and the reverberations of... (laughs) uh, Reverberations will be felt by audiences and reenactors alike. So the reenactment will conclude in Congo Square, which I already mentioned, a location instrumental for preserving African culture in America with a celebration, transforming the violent suppression of the freedom fighters into a celebration of their achievement. Slave, so, the, so we changed the ending, as, um, uh, as Audre Lorde talked about, you know, that you know, we definitely don't have to continue the vision of the oppressors. Um, that we can reimagine, we can reimagine what we want, and in that reimagining, actually achieve it. Um, so the slave rebellion reenactment will continue the original rebel vision of emancipation that is embodied throughout the performance, and will open the possibility for participants and audience members to imagine freedom. Hmm, what does that look like? <laughs> and to engage a variety of audiences, the project will have multiple identities. The reenactment itself a multi-channel video installation of documentation from the event and the recruiting meetings and documentary photos. So it's going to be really, really awesome. So um, Dred Scott, um, he makes revolutionary art to propel history forward. Uh, He first first received national attention in 1989 when his art became the center of controversy over his transgressive use of the American flag while he was a student at the School of Art Institute of Chicago, President of GHW, President GHW Bush um, called this art disgraceful, and the entire U.S. Senate denounced this work and outlawed it when they passed legislation to quote protect the flag end quote. His work has been exhibited, performed at the Whitney Museum, uh, MoMA, uh, PS1, BAM, Fisher, and galleries and street corners across the country. His work is in the collection of the Whitney Museum and has received grants and awards from Creative Capital Foundation, the MAP Fund, a 2018 fellowship from the United States Artists, and a socially engaged artist fellowship from A Blade of Grass Foundation. And uh, he has a TED Talk, which is really, really wonderful, about shaping a national um, work, shaping a national dialogue. And now we're going to play that great interview with... um, with Dred Scott, and uh, that's going to be followed by um, that's going to be followed by <laughs> uh, a rebroadcast of, uh, or perhaps of another another interview uh, that we had. I'm not exactly certain which one yet. I'm still figuring that out. So you will be pleasantly surprised. So. So without further ado, um, let's pull up Dred Scott. Oh, hi. How are you? Hi. I'm well. How about you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. I was just getting ready to text you. Are you ready? <laughs> I is ready. Super, it's super. for you? Oh, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I um um came home and so it just gave me more opportunity to read some more about about you and to watch your videos on your website 
and to uh, look up Dred Scott, um, you know, the historic um, ancestor, yeah. <laughs> and and learn that you are you are also from um, you're from Chicago, from Illinois. Yeah, no, I grew up in Chicago, yeah, yeah. Right, right, and I was just looking, you know, noticing that um, Dred Scott, uh, the historic figure, he lived in Illinois, and I was wondering, was there any connection between your taking that name? Uh, no, the, the the connection was just that, that you know, I, I wanted a name to remind people and have people think about um, – sort of America and, and, and the, the real history of this country and the present day reality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, my parents named me Scott and, and at the time, you know, I had dreads and all the dreads I knew were like Jimmy Dredd or Steve Dredd and I'm like, wait, I'll be Dredd Scott. That'll be perfect. And anybody ah. they'll have to know about, the, you know, they'll have to think back that a, there's no rights that a black person has that a white man is bound to respect. Right, exactly, exactly. And 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 I just love your, you know, your statement about, you know, revolutionary art to propel history forward. And and I was just thinking about um, you know, the Sankofa concept, you know, of going back to fetch it and it's almost as if um, you know, you are um sort of uh uh I guess taking the Sankofa um concept and moving it forward. So in both directions at the same okay. time. Well, I, I like that Sankofa connection. I hadn't actually thought about that. Where, where the statement comes from is I I, um, I was actually reading a, a, a work by Bowser Dunn. Um, he wrote uh, or gave a, a, a series of talks at, at the Yanan Forum on Literature and Art, which then got published. And he, ta- he talked about the, the real task of workers is to – sort of know people and know people well, but their their job is to help the masses of people propel history forward, um, you know, with, with their art. And I thought that was actually, I mean, it was a much longer, uh, you know, an essay, but I thought that actually was the essence of it. And I thought that was really true in what I was trying to do. And I'm like, okay, that, that, that actually fits. We do need to propel history forward there. And right now, you know, the, the world needs to be radically changed and we need, you know, millions and millions of people to do it. And, Mm-hmm. If my art can contribute to that, I'm, I'm, my, my job is done. Right, right, yeah. Um, who is the uh, who is the writer that you were telling me? I I didn't catch. Oh, Mao Zedong, the the leader of the oh, Chinese Revolution. Oh, Mao Zedong. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's really great. Oh, wow. Nice, nice. I was thinking about um, um, what is it? Robert F. Williams, and you know. Ah, well, she's pretty badass. <laughs> that that'd be great well you know because robert f williams you know when he was um you know when this government was pursuing him uh similar to the way that this government is pursuing asada shakur and yeah and and, and say pete o'neill in tanzania um and and yeah. other other revolutionaries you know that are on the you know that can't come home you know he yeah. you know china welcomed them and yeah. you know yeah, yeah so anyway i was just thinking about that <laughs> Um, and and I presume that you know I was looking at your work, um, particularly you know your your installations, um, the uh, the one about the the juxtaposition of young black men in in New York and and the ones in Liverpool, and, yeah. and the whole idea that you know that they the police chiefs were consulting with one another and like whoa yeah yeah and I was thinking about Hank Willis Thomas and Bayate Ross Smith and Kamal Sinclair and. Um, and Chris Johnson's Question Bridge Black Males um, 
and okay, and and I I think Hank lives in does he live in D.C. or Washington or or um or no, New York? Really. Hank lives in New York. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. So you all know each other. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And it's like all black artists know each other. <laughs> it's not uh, completely true, but I you know we've. we've with pretty rare exception, we've all met at one point, and and mm-hmm. has, you know, given the kind of work he does and with Bayate, I mean, it's you know, we're, we're friends. I mean, we don't hang out all the time, but I was actually just texting with Hank earlier today. Oh, and, uh, wow! Bayate is, is yeah. actually really, really smart. And Question Bridge was, I mean, it's just a really wonderful project. I mean, it's mm-hmm. got, you know, and it's it's really you know, been able to tour and got a lot of people to to think about, you know, mm-hmm. think about black men, which is good. Right, yeah, and your work is just wow. I just love your printmaking. Oh, that is just so phenomenal. It's really awesome. Yeah, all of your different mediums is just like wow, and yeah, it's just just really, really great. And then this, you know, the current work, um, you know, the slave rebellion reenactment. I'm like, I'm so excited about that. Oh my goodness, tell me about it. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I'm excited about it too. It's, I've been working on it for a long time, but it's sort of coming together. It's a community engaged project that mm-hmm. is going to to reenact the largest rebellion of enslaved people in the history of the United States. Um, yeah. That rebellion happened in 1811, which you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and it happened outside of New Orleans. And the thing that you know is really inspiring to me about this was this rebellion actually was both had a chance of success, and it was aiming to seize all of Orleans Territory, which is modern-day Louisiana, and set up an African republic, you know, that would be a sanctuary for Africans and people of African descent where, you know, slavery would be outlawed and abolished and would not be the the foundation of the economy. And so that is a really radical vision of freedom. In fact, the most radical vision of freedom in the United States at the time, and it was in the heads of the enslaved. And so that um, was something that I really wanted to reenact and, and also since the history is so buried that, you know, you know mm-hmm. many people know a little bit, say, about Nat Turner or maybe you've heard of Denmark Macy or Gabriel Prosser or Stono Rebellion or something. But this rebellion, which, you know, was the largest and it could have really changed U.S. and world history, mm-hmm. it isn't so well known. And so it, it would be important to sort of honor sort of these, you know, radical visionary leaders who put everything on the line to, to remake the world and mm-hmm. – um, so we're going to reenact that with uh, hundreds of people in period costumes with machetes and muskets and sickles and sabers. And um, horses, right? From, <laughs> and horses, yeah. We're going to have 20 horses and mm-hmm. flags flying and African drumming. You know, Baba Luther's going to be leading the drum corps of, of mm-hmm. traditional African drumming, and people will be singing and chanting to it. We're hoping to have um, a song that um, was actually sung during the Haitian Revolution. Oh, um, nice. It's, sort of, it's a, a Creole song that we're hoping to get uh, – uh, Bruce Sunpai, uh, I forget Sunpai's last name, but he and Luther were going to sort of collaborate and make some music mm-hmm. so that people can learn to sing this fighting song. And and, um, okay. and so it will be, you know, it will, and, you know, like in some of the rehearsals, like uh, some people have been like taking rocks and banging the machetes on them in time to Luther's drumming. Mm-hmm. And so it really feels, I mean, Luther says this sounds like war. And that's kind of the, the effect. I mean, so there's going to be this beautiful sort of black people marching with machetes and muskets through, mm-hmm. you know, Laplace and Kenner and, and Destrehand and um, New Sarpy and, and, you know, all these towns and in, uh, in the river parishes. And, and I think for, 
you know, some people would be like, oh, wow, the, you know, the, the army of the enslaved is here to liberate us. Let's go. You know, we're saying <laughs> on to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Freedom or death, we're going to enslave, rejoin us. And I think for a lot of people, that would be really inspiring. And for other people, like, whoa, wait, black people with, with machetes? <laughs> They're coming to, to go to New Orleans? <laughs> I'm not so sure about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but it, it, it's really a, a project in which this clash between the, the past and the present um, you know, this sort of, again, this, like, black army of the enslaved in mm-hmm. these outdated clothing with outdated weapons set against modern-day uh, exurban New Orleans, you know, grain elevators and oil refineries and, mm-hmm. and you know, Domino's Pizza and, and trailer parks and gated communities. That's a place where people will be like, what the hell am I looking at? And in that moment, they can actually rethink a lot of long-held assumptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's going to really be phenomenal, and and so it's going to be filmed, right? Yeah, there's a, a filmmaker named John Acampa, and his work shows in galleries and museums. It's not going to be something you'll see on Netflix or in a movie theater, um, but it'll be more like in you know, the, the you know, Contemporary Art Center in, in New Orleans or the Whitney Museum or the okay. African American Museum in, mm-hmm. in L.A. or something like that. So they sh- his work shows in museums, and it's often it'll have you know it's a multi-channel work, so there'll be you know, three or four screens going simultaneously in a complicated mm-hmm. audio mix that will move around. They're very high depth. These shoots in very high definition, and mm-hmm. and they're just beautiful films. And so, they're they're non-linear. So the audience, it's it's sort of like looking at a painting. The audience is going to have mm-hmm. to bring something to it. It's not going to be just A happens, B happens, C happens. But it's, you know, what is an imagery? You know, sort of footage of. Um, sort of uh, this army, you know, sort of walking down river next to maybe imagery of, uh, you know, 1930s film of an oil refinery being built next to somebody talking about why they've decided to participate in this reenactment. I mean, so it's it's these things weaving in and out of time and and, and space, you know, is, is a way that, that people can, can really kind of meditate on and think about, you know, why this history of freedom and emancipation is important to remember. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, so, how did you how did you come to know about about this um, uh, this large, you know, slave rebellion? Because uh, I think I heard about it from um, Malik Rahim, who is um, co-founder of Common Ground. Um, but that was, yeah, and and he 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 spoke about about you know wanting to sort of revive that energy, you know. Um, and I just think it's so exciting because I know they have um, lynching reenactments. I just saw this film, uh, Always in Season, which uh, was, was screened there in um, in New Orleans at the, a film festival. And it's, it's opening here uh, in San Francisco at the Roxy. And, um, you know, important film, you know, about, about how lynching is still happening, you know, to our people. But within the film, I didn't know that there were lynching reenactments. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, like, I don't want to do that. But I, and so, you know, so the juxtaposing, you know, reliving the sorrow and the pain as opposed to celebrating and reliving the the victory, even if it didn't happen, you know, just the idea of, hey, I am not doing this. I'm going to be proactive. I'm going to liberate myself. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, I'm all for people learning about the gruesomeness of American history, and, and mm-hmm. people should know because it is, it's a brutal history, and you yeah. know, it's a country that was founded on slavery and genocide. And so, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, for people to look back and squarely confront lynching, or or 
or you know other forms of enslavement. I'm all for people learning about that because there's frankly too much ignorance about that. Mm-hmm. But this is really different. I I mean you know we're we're not. This is not a project about slavery. This is a project about freedom and emancipation. These are people who have you know were embodying people who had a mission to liberate themselves, and even if they weren't successful in seizing all of Orleans territory. For at least two or three days, they were free. If you mm-hmm. take up an, uh, an axe against an enslaver and strike them down, you are free until yeah. you get caught. Mm-hmm. Um, and even once you get caught, you're still free. You know they they you know they can kill you, but <laughs> you're you're free. And so um, you know th- these are freedom fighters that we're embodying. And people, I mean, sometimes people have said, "Look, well, why do you want to play slaves?" It's like I don't want to play no slave. I ain't playing a slave. That's not where we are. For people who stepped off the plantation with a, a passion in our heart and a fire in our eyes mm-hmm. to try and create a situation where neither we nor anybody we loved or anybody in the future would be enslaved. And that's righteous. And, and so, you know, there's a real difference between that and, you know, these lynching reenactments, which, you know, I I don't want to judge what they are, but this is not that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, it isn't. And um, And I don't. I don't think I've ever heard of a um, a slave rebellion reenactment. I know they have like the Civil War reenactments. Um, you yeah. know, um, the Confederacy. They they like love. I mean, I know they happens <laughs> in a lot of these historic places. <laughs> oh yeah. But uh, yeah, if, you know, like it's really great that um, you know some of the the buildings are still in existence in in the area where we're going to be gathering and then marching because. Um, a lot of times these um these historic landmarks were um uh you know were were destroyed yeah yeah well actually i mean on the the you know side of the river that we're on there are actually not that many plantations there are a couple of them um in the you know but you know there's Destrahan, which i mean is just a, a horrible place um and there's Ormond. um mm-hmm. but i mean those are the only two that were really pass um and then because most of them are on the, the west bank and 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 then there's one that's further upriver in reserve like uh, san francisco which but they're just i mean those are sites of genocide and so it is good to be able to pass by them but it's um and i, I think at best ran they're actually going to have some like gala or something happening right as we pass it so that'll be an interesting kind of uh interesting site for them to see you know is there Celebrating slavery versus celebrating the the overthrow of slavery, <laughs> and um, so we'll, that'll it'll be interesting to see the response from from their gala people. Um, there's going to be a uh, gala. Seriously, there's going to be a gala. Really? I think so. That's they. I I mean, I I know that it was you know when we were getting the permits, it was sort of an issue of whether the two things could happen, happen simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And my response was, y'all can change your date, but this is our date. And we're not, you guys are continuing to profit off slavery, so mm-hmm. we are not going to bow down to that. I mean, it's, I couldn't tell them that, but that, that might, you know, when they were like, well, you know, we, we're not sure we could su- support both. It's like, that is a, a site of genocide that you celebrate weddings in. I am not going to not do this because of they, they want to raise some money that day. Um, but we we shall we shall see what happens. Oh, wow, that should be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering if um, um, I don't know how long you've been planning this, and I was wondering if if 
the setting, um, like, for instance, that is happening, you know, um, early November, you know, before Veterans Day. It's happening during the 400 years of return. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's also happening um, um, on the um, 400 years of African-American History Act, um, you know, post August 25th, which was the National Day of Healing. And, mm-hmm. and we, you know, we rang the bells uh, one minute for each 400 years um, at a, a Fort Monroe a National Monument um, in uh, where Point Comfort is in Virginia, in Hampton, Virginia. So I was just wondering, sort of, with all this, you know, this historic stuff swirling in 2019, the reason why it's happening this year and at that particular that particular date. No, um, I mean, the, the, the date was because we wanted to pick a time when it was not too warm, not too cold, didn't have, um, you know, and, and was not clashing with Mardi Gras or something like that. I mean, it's like if we'd done it on January, you know, 8th to 11th, it, it, it potentially could be 25 degrees and it would be too cold to do it. Okay. Um, and so we moved off that day. And it, it is also not sort of like the traditional, you know, it, it, it's an it's a community-engaged art project. It's not a traditional reenactment. And so when we decided that we didn't have to do it on the day, that gave a little bit of freedom. And then we, we actually wanted to do it last year. I mean, I was, oh. we were, I've been working on this for about six years, mm-hmm. and we just didn't have the funding and couldn't get the permits together in time to do it last year. So we decided to make sure we could do it right and do it with the, the you know, the, the, the strength and vision that it needs to have. Um, and... Uh, um, you know, that meant we're doing it this year, which, you know, turns out to be a, a good time. I mean, it, you know, mm-hmm. you mentioned the, you know, the, the 400 years and, and, and even, frankly, the conversation about race and racism in the United States has only become even a more fever pitch mm-hmm. um, right now. So, um, you know, the project would have been good three years ago. It will be good now. It will be good in five years. I, I just don't see somehow that a you know, in the in the next week and a half, America is suddenly going to give up white supremacy and, and, and mm-hmm. come correct. That's that ain't going to happen in 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 nine days, ten days, or in ten years, or in a hundred years. I think as long as America is America, it's going to be you know people will be catching hell, in particular black folk. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. I want to ask you: Could you spell the name of the um, of the cinematographer that's going to be um, uh, filming? Yeah, uh, John, J-O-H-N, Acampra, A-K-O-M-F-R-A-H. He's a, he was born in Ghana, but he, he grew oh, up in, in London. I, I know his name, yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, wow, nice, nice. Have you all worked before together? No, we haven't. I mean, we, we met in, I think, 2003 or 2004, and when I met him, I was like, oh, my God, I'm meeting John Acampra. And he's like, oh, my God, I'm meeting Dred Scott. And, you know, I mean, at the time, he wasn't so famous. I mean, now he's a really big deal filmmaker in the in the fine art world. Mm-hmm. But back then, he was, a, a, you know, a, he had tremendous critical play, praise and a cult following, and I was I was one of his cult members. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, he, you know, he was a little surprised that somebody really appreciated what he he was doing, and I was in sort of a similar boat. But, you know, I, I had some people who really was into what I was doing, but I wouldn't have thought that somebody in London would really know that I existed. And he was like, no, no, I know you worked. And so, We've, you know, been friends. Not, you know, we don't hang out much since we're separated by an ocean. But we've been friends since then, and mm-hmm. and this is just the first chance we've had to be able to work together. Oh, that is really awesome. Yeah. Well, I know I was reading um, 
you know, on the website about, um, the, you know, slave rebellion reenactment that, you know, there's like, um, uh, there's, there's like curriculum. I mean, you've done a whole lot of research to be able to, um, you know, to think, I guess to be able to do the thinking and the creation around, around the actual, um, reenactment. And I was wondering, um, um, if you could talk a little bit about, um, Charles, uh, is it Desalons? Desalons or Delons. Delons, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've done a, a fair amount of research. This is a research-based project, and, and there's also a team of people. I mean, a lot of the research has also been done by uh, Shana Griffin, who's uh, a really amazing feminist, radical artist, activist, black feminist uh, down here who's uh, the – assistant project coordinator or an assistant project manager. And so a lot of the reading list is compiled by her. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as Charles, I mean, the, the thing is there's, you know, I'm an artist. I'm not a historian. I work with historians. I read history, but I'm not a historian. And there are, there's actually a fair amount of mystery associated with him. And one of the key historians, Leon Waters, who mm-hmm. is sort of the reason anybody knows this history in, in the 21st century because he had personal family history when he was a, a little boy, like 10 years old. He had a much older cousin uh, who was like 80 at the time, and she told him that, um, uh, you know, his, his ancestors fought against slavery. And, and he thought that was really interesting, but, you know, you know, what do you do with that when you're a 10-year-old boy? And when he got older, he and some comrades you know, decided to become a revolutionary, and they decided to research it. And so they did the primary research, which was published in a book, On to New Orleans, Mm-hmm. Um, in 1996, and that's really the foundational history. But there are other historians who've done research. There's um, uh, you know, Dr. Ibrahim Asek, who is the director of the Whitney oh, Plantation. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and one of the things that's interesting, I mean, Leon and, and um, Albert Thrasher, who did the actual research for the book that Leon published, you know, they are not fluent in French, and a lot of the original archives, you know, is a French society, and so they're, mm-hmm. they're in French, and, and um, uh, 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 Ibrahim Asek is francophone, and he's from Senegal, right. and so he reads mm-hmm. French, and so he has looked at some of the records because, um, and, and, you know, so one of the questions is, where is Charles from? Mm-hmm. And so Charles, according to, to Dr. Sek, was born in the Islam plantation, and he's got a date, you know, he's got a... He's seen a birth certificate or, you know, a record of, of his birth. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Leon says that according to oral tradition, he was born in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And um, and for me as an artist, you know, I, I think it, it does matter where he comes from. I'm not invested in either one being true. Mm-hmm. But the question is how do, how do you privilege or, or how, do you, how do you know history? A lot of times academics have discounted oral history and oral tradition. Mm-hmm. And that's a real problem. But there is also, you know, oral historians that don't actually acknowledge, well, okay, we've got this record of this one particular Charles Delon that's, you know, been born here and grew up here at the right age. That's a problem. I, I don't know how to, I mean, I, I don't, I have not taken the time or gone through the work to resolve that. Mm-hmm. But they're both really, you know, they're both important historians and that difference exists. I also know. Um, from a, a reporter that did some research into the area that he believes that the Charles DeLons, who was born um, in New Orleans, uh, was also of mixed race. He, he was sort of an enslaved woman and an enslaver. Um, you, know, the, she, you know, she was probably raped, and, and, um, and so he was, 
you know, had some privilege to be able to be sort of a, an overseer in a certain sense. Right. And, and but he was sort of, you know, his, what they would call mixed race or mulatto. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I've heard these different stories. I'm not a historian. They're all interesting to me, and it's interesting to me that there's this sort of mystery surrounding this sort of person who is, you know, pivotal for this history and could have, you know, had profound implications on 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 the fate of the world in a certain sense. Um, but, you know, as an artist, the, the point is to take the broad brushstrokes of a story and the kernel is that these were people who were fighting for liberation and to, to develop that. And since I'm not doing, say, a Hollywood screenplay or a, even a stage play where, where character is what's the essence of it, where you then would really need to know, well, where is this person from? Who were his parents? Where was he born? If mm-hmm. he came from Haiti, was he part of the revolution or did he have friends that were part of the revolution? Where right. did he get his thinking? All those things would be really important if you were doing a, a movie, but that's not what this is. And so, you know, I, I have freedom to take some liberty with what the history might have been and don't need to resolve those questions. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's just when... um. When I look at his name, I think about Dessalines. <laughs> uh, well, it would be cool if he was Dessalines because we would have would be in a different world, man. It's like you know, <laughs> with even some shortcomings, and he at times was you know kind of kind of brutal. But he did. Without him, we do not get Haiti. And, right. Uh, you know, yeah. Louverture gets a lot of the credit, but you know, without Dessalines, that revolution would not have been completed. Yeah, well, you know, we got, you know, Christoph as well and um, Pashan, you know, it was, there were four of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I was just, um, I was just wondering sort of, are are you going to be in, uh, are you a part of the project? Are you going to be in yeah, costume? I'm, yes, I will be in costume. I will be walking as far as anybody. I'll be walking 26 miles. I will have a machete in my hand. And I will be saying, on to New Orleans, freedom or death, we're going to enslave you, join us. I'll be just one of one of hundreds of reactors. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. So do you have the 500 people yet? Uh, we're not we're not at 500. I think we're probably going to be closer to 350 or 400. I don't know for sure. I mean, it's, it's the, the thing that's interesting is, and, and since you've spent time in New Orleans, you know this is to be the case, a lot of people sort of – here don't have patience for bureaucracy um and so the idea of like filling out an online form it's like is is not something which everybody's into and in fact luther who's you know i've been talking with this project about probably three years now uh-huh. and and i i knew he was definitely going to participate he was an organizer board. he was talking about other people to participate um <laughs> but i couldn't get him to fill out the online form and he's like well i gotta do that it's like dude if you don't do that we ain't gonna be able to get you a costume we ain't gonna be able to pay you we ain't going to be able to, to, you know, send you emails to tell you where to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, I mean, and so so I know that there are people that are planning on being part of this that don't have a costume yet because they haven't filled out before. Um, <laughs> and so I don't, I honestly don't know how many people are going to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're we're working to, to get everybody registered, to get them the information to know what bus they got to get on, where the bus is leaving from, mm-hmm. where they're, you know, when they're jumping off. But uh Mm-hmm. You know, we, and if so, if you know other people, including people that live down here, mm-hmm. that you think should participate, and they, if they're at 18 years old and can walk at least, you know, can walk uh, 26 miles in two days, or at least a good por- portion of that, mm-hmm. tell them to, to get signed up. Now's the time. We got to get them in this week so they can have a costume. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was looking at the designs um, from your um, uh, uh, from the designer, 
and it's just like and there's a video I mean it's like you can make it yourself but it's like it's just really neat I mean down to how to make you know the color right you know because you know these these are enslaved people which means you know it's got the fabric's got to look a certain way um to to look authentic it's just really well thought out all of these different aspects of of the um reenactment how many how many people are on your team um it, i mean it's a big team i mean and, and what what is the team i mean it's like i can in a certain sense all the reenactors are part of the team so it's it's mm-hmm. really big but the people that are in the core yeah. you know, Allison Parker's the lead costume designer but she's got a team that's working with her including many seamstresses and and whole sewing circles. I mean, there's been probably over 100 people that have contributed to making costumes, I think. Nice. You know, Allison's the, the main costume designer, and she's got a couple sort of key seamstresses that she's worked with a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Bob Steed, who's the director of Antenna, which is the project, that, the, you know, the arts organization that's sponsoring this. Mm-hmm. There is uh, Dorothy Ray and Shana Griffin, who are, t- and are uh, two people at Antenna, as well as Ifatuma Nidu, uh, who's doing a lot of the, the outreach um, and, and sort of overseeing some of the recruitment. There's Kaya Livers, um, who is uh, doing the community outreach and coordination. There's Ernest Johnson, who's also doing a lot of the, the community outreach. And, and um, there's John Acompra and his team. He's got a bunch of people working with him. Um, there is a, 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 a locations manager, uh, Peter Wilson, but then there's a property manager, an assistant director, um, a... Uh, armorer, a, a battle, you know, a uh, battle uh, uh, choreographer, um, mm-hmm. a um, uh, 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 the Buffalo Soldiers and Crescent City Cowboys, Dirty South Riders, but are, are all part of this. They're the Horse Riders, but then uh, Terry Jackson from the Buffalo Soldiers has sort of coordinated all of that. I mean, there's Luther, uh, you know, who's organizing the drummers, but there's a core of drummers, so there's you know, probably, and then, you know, the project manager, Jennifer Crook. So there's probably about a, a core of about, you know, 16 or 17 people that are mm-hmm. kind of really working on this, talking, you know, sort of, well, now almost every day, but in some capacity. But then there's the, all the reenactors and, and funders and, and seamstresses and, uh, you know, civic leaders. I mean, you know, we, you know, like, you know, Pastor August at Rising Star Baptist Church, which is in uh, Laplace, has been a real big supporter. There's... Uh, we were just talking with um, uh, 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 Rita Paralu and Stephen Paralu, who run the, the God, I forget, the, the, there's a historic black church in reserve, and they're sort of, we're, we're doing some of the rehearsals up there. There's you know, people at second line stages have been helpful. I mean, there's a, you know, there's like a core of like 16, 17 people, but there's, you know, very, there's many other people that are, you know, this project wouldn't happen without. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what happens? <clears throat> um, you know, like, gosh, is this perhaps the biggest um, art um, event that you've ever staged? So uh, yeah, it's by far and away the biggest I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are <laughs> a couple artists who've done bigger, but, but yeah, this is the biggest I've done for, mm-hmm. by, a, by a country mile. Right. Yeah. So, what happens after this? I get a drink. I get to relax a little bit, and then I go to the next project. Okay. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, if I've still got air in my lungs, I'm going to be making art, trying to change the world. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I've got um, – I'm working on a photo-based project called Black Is, which are mm-hmm. portraits. They're just like a big – like really large, like 45 inches by 30 inches portraits, mm-hmm. headshots of mm-hmm. black people. 
you know, of different, you know, ages, different genders, different well-known and not well-known, different wealth, different skin tones, but they're just these beautiful, beautiful portraits of all sorts of black folk um, that I'm going to be doing. And, and that's a project that gets made at 125th of a second as opposed to a six-year pace. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to working a little bit quicker in the future. Probably, probably I'll, I mean, I've, been, I've started it a little bit, but I'll be doing that um, in more earnest probably starting in January. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Well, maybe I can uh, come out to New York and see that. That is. Okay. Yeah, it sounds really awesome. Wow. Well, well, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. And um, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to to make sure that I, I let people know? Uh, that they should know about the website. They should go to slave-revolt.com. And, um, you know, it's like it, that will be good after the fact, but also mm-hmm. if, if it's before the fact, if you if this gets out in ways that people could see it beforehand, they should come either see it if they're in the area or participate if they're in the area. You know, they, this is it's going to be an amazing, powerful experience. And, and, you know, it should be, if you can be part of it, if you're black or indigenous, you should be part of this if you at all can. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can't, you should come watch it because you know nobody's ever seen anything like this before, and and perhaps won't see anything like this for a long time afterwards. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thinking, you know, it's, it's definitely for the ancestors, and uh, you know, it's oh, really, yeah. really a wonderful, like you know, sort of visceral way to to honor them. Yeah. And yeah. honor freedom, you know. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we end at Gahungo Square, and I guess the community can come out and celebrate yeah. with us. They can. I mean, we're going to you know, start at the old U.S. Mint or, or, or you know, Jazz and Heritage Museum and walk through the quarter and end up in Congo Square. So if people want to see us, you know, in full march, uh, they can, you know, see us in the quarter. But, um, you know, then they could come in Congo Square, and we will sort of call out the names of people who, you know, participated in this rebellion and, and then we can, you know, have a, a a party that's a cultural celebration of of uh, you know all the all the forms of music that exist because of Congo Square and the Africans who were in it in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any ancestry um, uh, in in uh, in Louisiana or Mississippi or? Um, uh, Mississippi. My my on my mom's. I mean, I don't know my dad's side of the family beyond basic. I mean, I know. I mean, what I knew about my dad is they were in Minnesota, and -hmm. I know he was born in Detroit, but I don't know anything beyond that. My Mm -hmm. mom's side of the family, my my grandfather on my mom's father was born in a small-ass town called Edwards, Mississippi, which is about the size of, you know, just a house. I mean, (laughs) I think there were like, when he was there, about a couple thousand people, so it's a small town. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then we had, and my mom's mom, um, her people are from from Alabama. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, all black folk have roots in the South, and that, and that's, you know, with Mississippi and Alabama. Right, yeah. But they, mm-hmm. but they, they ended up in Chicago. Um, you know, my mom's parents, they, they each ended up in Chicago, and that's more what I know, but it, it, it definitely goes to the South. And I, I, on my mom's, my mom's, my mom's mother's father's wife, we can trace into slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know my my mom's father's. I know I know his grandfather, but I don't know. Um, I don't know back beyond that. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Well, I look forward to meeting you and seeing the other yeah. participants um, next week. Yeah. I'm so excited. Got my ticket yeah. last night. 
good deal flying in on Wednesday. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be really fun, uh, you know, sort of yeah, singing those freedom songs and marching. That's going to be hot. That's going to be so wonderful. It'll be, it'll be great. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you for the interview, and I look forward to meeting you in about a week. Yeah. All right, sure. You take good care. Take, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was Dred Scott talking about last week um, about the, uh, the slave reenactment project. And uh, again, um, you can, um, there are a lot of different ways to be a part of it. Um, and uh, from what I just heard, it might be too late to get um, uh, a costume um, made there, but you know, you could always make your own costume. Uh, if you start now, because <laughs> you have um, you have today and um, you have um, tomorrow to get it together. So really, really, really exciting. So you should visit um, the uh, the website to find out all about it. Slave Revolt, slave hyphen revolt dot com, and uh, sort of keeping thematically, uh, sort of looking at African freedom. Um, I. Uh, interviewed Michael Jean Sullivan uh, quite a while ago about a play that he wrote about the Fugitive Slave Act. And um, and that's sort of in keeping thematically um, with um, sort of, you know, sort of the resistance to African freedom in this, this land um, and, and the, legal, the legal statutes that were passed and, um, and ratified to keep African people um, from their recognition as human beings and uh and and liberty and their and their right to freedom. So this is a really good interview and I wanted to remind people that if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, um the film um Always in Season is continuing um at the Roxy in San Francisco and uh yeah Jacqueline Olive is the directing producer and this is a different kind of film. Uh it looks at um uh sort of the legacy of, of lynching and how that particular um, racial terror killing, it continues to happen to our people presently. And uh, and then the film, uh, as she looks historically at lynching, racial terror killing, um, that's documented in the um, the National Memorial to Peace and Justice um, that um, Brian Stevenson's organization, uh, the the uh, Equal Justice Institute, has um, erected. Um, it's really a beautiful, beautiful um, monument and honor to to those who lost their lives through racial terror uh, killings, and the connection between lynching and mass incarceration, killing black people, the end of enslavement, and mass incarceration, and and the museum. Um, um, the uh, that's that's also a part of the institutions that were um well the monuments that were and the institutions founded at the same time so there is the uh the National Memorial to Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum from Slavery to Mass Incarceration in Montgomery, Alabama. And Montgomery, Alabama is actually not that far from New Orleans, so if you are staying the weekend, you could get in your car and drive to Montgomery. And, and and see the uh, National Memorial of Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum from slavery to mass incarceration. But this film, um, Always in Season, 
wow, it's 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 really really compelling, and um, and definitely want to encourage people to see it, um, and and see you know sort of the toxic um, thinking around um, around African liberation and 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 this dominant narrative that says that black people, African people in this nation whose ancestors were enslaved do not have a right to freedom. So anyway, here is Michael Jean Sullivan. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you doing, Wanda? Oh, I'm fine. You're just mm-hmm. such a prolific artist. I mean, you've got you know, a new season coming up with San Francisco Mime Troop, and I see you're you know, back on stage. <laughs> yep. I took a year off, so I'm back again. Yeah, yeah. You got this wonderful work, Fugitive Slave Act, um, and it's gonna gonna have a free uh, stage reading at two o'clock on Saturday, this Saturday, the seventh, um, at the uh, as a part of the Lorraine Hansberry Theater and the Museum of the African Diaspora at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. Like, wow, what? <laughs> what yeah, a collaboration there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's uh seven three six Mission Street in San Francisco. And you are an actor, writer, director, blogger, and teacher committed to developing theater of social and economic justice, of political self determination, and of course, musical comedy, among other <laughs> things. So why don't we just jump right in and t- tell us about Fugitive Slave Act? Well, you know, um, back when the when the Fugitive Slave Act uh, was passed uh, back in uh, 1850, the United States passed this law that said that. Uh, but up to that point, you know, if a, if a slave ran away and they got to a free state, then they could consider themselves free if that state was a free state. That was as far as you had to go. If you were getting running from Maryland and you got to Pennsylvania, you were free. You made it. But but the, the the slave states weren't too happy with that, so they got Congress to pass the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which meant two things. One, you were a slave anywhere in the United States. You could not run far enough to consider yourself free. Uh, you had to get all the way out of the country to Canada or you know get somewhere else. And also, it meant that the slave catchers who were after you, they could deputize anybody. Any citizen of the United States could be automatically deputized to help catch you, and if they didn't, it was an act of treason. Mm-hmm. So anybody who was working for the, uh, who who was on the um, Underground Railroad, or just somebody who was uh, an abolitionist, or somebody who didn't want to get involved at all, the they could a marshal could just say, "I deputize you. You have to help me, and if you don't, you're breaking the law." So this uh, – I was doing some research years ago. This is actually like 10 years ago I started uh, thinking about this play. Mm-hmm. I was doing research because there was a, an event that happened. This, the play is based on a true historical event that happened after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, there's a group of um, ex-slaves who lived in southern Pennsylvania, and they had a big community there. And they were surrounded by all of these people who were abolitionists, and there were you know Amish folk and Mennonites and all these people who, you know, real, uh, didn't believe in uh, slavery. And there was a group of uh, ex-slaves led by a guy named William Parker, in a town called Christiana, Pennsylvania. And um, 
And so one day these slaves, these ex-slaves, heard that uh, for a group of them, their ex-master was coming to get them. And he'd gotten this whole big posse together, all of his family and you know relatives and all these people. And they were all coming up to Pennsylvania from Maryland to take his property back. That was all he cared about, he's taking his property back. And a lot of times the ex-slaves would just you know pull up roots, grab their family, and run to Canada, run to New York, try to get away. This group of slaves decided to fight. So in the, like I said, in the town of Christiana, they, instead of running, stood their ground. And when this guy came up to get them, it became this battle called the Riot of Christiana is how it's known in history. Mm. And it was a big deal um, because uh, some of the slave catchers were killed. Um, they tried to do the thing where they tried to get the local whites to they deputize them, and uh, they refused to help them. Um, the southern papers, after the battle was over, um, some of the southern papers said, well, this is the beginning of the Civil War, and this is in 1851. So they were taught – the southern papers were saying the Civil War is going to start now. We're going to um, – uh, I mean they actually used those phrases. They said, you know, the Union is gone. We're going we're gonna to secede. You know, the United States is over, and this is 10 years before the Civil War started. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it ended up being this huge event. It's the biggest event to happen uh, really uh, in terms of the unity of the United States until the Civil War started. And the fact that it didn't was because there was a trial, but the way the trial worked out, uh, you know, the South wasn't too happy with it. The North wasn't too happy with it. But uh, what I decided to do was try to take all of that event and make it into one play, and I kind of structured it like a Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a Greek chorus. I mean, there's a chorus uh-huh. of women who are telling the story, but uh-huh. it's a big play. There's like there's ten ten actors in it because it's a lot of characters I got to do. Um, so there's like I said, three women that are kind of telling the story, and they play different parts. And then there's you know the slave owners and the slave catchers and the local guy, the 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 Amish guy who's arrested for treason and the slaves who fought. So um, it's kind of a big, epic tragedy. Mhm. Wow! Wow! Sounds really interesting. Um, and and probably really little known story, right? Yeah, that's the thing is the the weird thing about the riot at Christianity, like I said, it was a big deal. They used to celebrate it uh, after the Civil War. They celebrated it every year. There would be a big event in Christiana saying this was the first battle for freedom. This is the time when black men and women stood up to fight for their freedom, and then slowly over time it got eroded. Slowly over time it became – instead of being a, a, a moment of pride to be celebrated – it, people started acting a little ashamed of it. They started saying, well, it's too bad that the slave owner got killed, and we should really invite his family up here to say how sorry we are that blood got shed. And then it started shifting into um, this, this, this you know, uh, honoring this guy, the slave owner, who, who died. And then it became about apologizing. So by the time it got to the 60s in the Civil Rights Movement, the House – that you that that the uh, battle took place in, mm-hmm. and or rather in front of the house that was a memorial 
to the battle was had been bought and torn down. They had gotten rid of all of the aspects of what had happened, and they just became about honoring the slave owner and apologizing to him because we're sorry that we were violent. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So what's the date? Is it is it September 11th or – which what is the date of oh the date of the battle? Uh-huh, Matter of fact, yeah. I do believe it was September 11th. Yeah, because I'm I'm looking at yeah I'm yeah. looking at there's there's something written about it in the African American Experience from mm-hmm. uh yeah uh, it's really easy to find um yeah I mean yeah, you can I'm go like, online wow. and find it but but you then you go why isn't this a bigger deal? It's why a really big this, deal. Yeah, because it was a huge thing in, in American history and African American history, but it has been lost. It, and I mean, it wasn't lost. It was put away. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that people. It just became like old news. It it was purposefully suppressed because it was an event that where the blacks stood up. Oh, and this is the thing about the trial is that all of these blacks, uh, ex-slaves, and people who were freed that had never been slaves, but because they stood up and fought in this moment. When it comes around to time when the police show up, when the marshals show up and they're going to arrest people, the weird thing is the first guy they arrest is the nearest white guy, the nearest white man who happened to come by on a horse and who was a northerner because they said there is no way that all these black people would have fought on their own unless they'd had some white man to lead them. Wow. So he's arrested for treason. And put on trial along with a bunch of other black guys, but he's put on – the white guy's put on trial first, and he's maybe going to get put to death for treason because it must have been the nearest white guy. And and I think it's because the idea is so scary. If it was a, just this white guy, then black people just are going to be slaves. It's a slave mentality. But what if they did it themselves? And that's the scariest part for the slave owners is what if the blacks actually rose up on their own? Because then suddenly they're going to look around and say we're surrounded by slaves, <laughs> and they have been, and those and the slave owners have been lying to themselves about at this point. At the same time, and I put this in the play. At the same time, there was a medical convention that had happened in New Orleans where they had come out with all these definitions of new diseases that only black slaves in the South could get. One of the sla- one of the diseases that black slaves can get is called is like laziness. It's an official physical disease as far as they're concerned. Only black slaves get it, and the only way to treat it is they need to be gently whipped. The other disease they can get, and they put this in their medical books, is a, a disease, and they use a Greek name for it, which is slave runaway in Greek. And they're saying this is another mental disease because slaves are naturally happy. And history shows that black people are just happier being slaves. We are not uh, uh, designed to be free by God. So the slave owners are lying to themselves about this stuff. And the scariest thought is that if they're wrong, that means they are surrounded by millions of blacks that don't want to be slaves and are willing to kill to be free. Hmm. So that's why the uprising is such a it, – it's – it was so important to suppress it because it's a lot different uh, having Abraham Lincoln and the Northern Army come down and free a bunch of slaves, or rather having a bunch of slaves free themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. You know, we think about you know enslaved Africans 
and we hear the stories of 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 John Brown and mm-hmm. but we don't hear hear the stories of the black men that were well, real in, integral yeah. in in that whole um uh resistance, you know, mm-hmm. that that ended up with, you know, with them all hung. But yeah. you know, we hear about John Brown, but there are a lot of black men, I mean, that were that were more you know, important to that particular uprising than Brown even. Right. And then we think about Denmark D C and mm-hmm. then everyone knows the Nat Turner uh yeah. rebellion, but then, you know, it's not connected necessarily to what happened in Haiti. And then right. here it is with this um battle, the riot of Christiana, that actually had monuments that were destroyed. I'm like, Oh, mm-hmm. that's horrible. Like you can't even and go back and see it now, right? Right, yeah. And the thing is, we hear about Nat Turner's uprising, but I think one of the things that's that's different and important is that the Nat Turner uprising was a slave uprising that failed. Mm-hmm. So people like to say they'll talk about it because um, as important as it was, but also it's important to the national consciousness that it failed, mm-hmm. and they were slaves. These were guys who could have run at the Christiana uprising or, or battle. Uh, these are guys who could have run. They weren't slaves anymore, mm-hmm. and they won. Yeah, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. These were free black men who fought and won, and that's why they were erased. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, that is awesome. And what a name, Christiana. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, exactly, right there in Christiana, Pennsylvania. And like I said, people can go up and look at it. So because of the the difficulty in writing a, a history play is that people can just go online and read all about it. They'll know the whole story before I even do the play. Um, but, I mean, there is stuff in there that, that uh, I mean, there's a lot of research that, you know, finds certain things. Because I, I went through the transcripts of the trial, which were long. I didn't read the entire transcript of the, of, of the trial, all 200 pages of that. Um, and then, and, and you know, read all the different articles and interviews. Um, and the guy, William Parker, he actually was invited by John Brown to take part in, you know, uh, uh, just like Frederick Douglass was, you know, that that uh, there were these – because these people knew each other, you know, on a certain level. They'd heard of each other. Um, so so the uh, – so the, the struggle against slavery in the north – you know, like there were slave there were slave uprisings in New York City that people don't talk about. There was it seventeen seventeen eighty one, there was a slave uprising in New York City. Um Yeah. Uh so there there's all this stuff that happened in the north that also that the northern press and historians have kind of suppressed because they don't want anyone to think they want you know, it's like the civil war happened, see we're all in favor of freedom. No, you weren't. Mm-hmm. Um so I mean, so well, I, I think there's this whole aspect of our history and American history that the the um, that that is part of the suppression, part of the the real heroism that needs to the stories of heroism that need to be told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was reading about William Parker. It's really mm-hmm. interesting when I think about William Parker. I think about you know the musician, the bassist who is yeah. in New York. Yeah. <laughs> Who started um, the? Um, uh, he started a, a jazz festival there. Um, you, hmm. you know, improvisational music. 
um, which I can't think of right at the moment, the name of it. But um, but this William Parker, um, he uh, was born a slave, I was, I'm reading, in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, and his mother died while he was still young, so he was sent to live in the quarters, a low building housing slaves of both sexes, um, and one building was for single people and children whose parents had been sold or had died. And it talks about how um, he, you know, had to learn to fend for himself um, and, and, and fight for food, which is kind of messed up. And then mm-hmm. he resolved to run away when he watched his friends being sold, and at 17 he did escape because um, his, uh, his owner had picked up a stick to whip him for refusing to go to work in the rain. So he seized the stick and whipped his master and left. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, he yeah. Parker was an amazing man. Everybody that met him said, you know, he was a big and strong guy, but he was a natural leader and he was very intelligent. And he had a sense of himself. What he talked about when I put in the play is he said that his, that the key to slavery was the acceptance. Because, you know, he says that, that you're a slave in your mind. And it's kind of like what Franz Fanon talks about in Wretched of the Earth, the importance of the the um, the importance of uh, African colonies back in the 60s to have their own revolutions. You have to free yourself. If you do not free yourself, some part of you is always still a slave. Mm-hmm. And so Parker realizes that that when he looks around and he sees all these people and they know bad things are going to happen, they know they're going to get sold that day. And he's like, why don't you run? You know, Maryland. What Maryland did in the South was they basically raised slaves and then shipped them down. They sold them down to you know Georgia and Mississippi and stuff. He's like, you know, you're going to get sold. I said, well, I can't. I can't run. Master won't. Master will come after me, and he's my master. And Parker realized that these people are enslaved in their minds, and and he was too, because he says he after uh, the Civil War he writes his memoirs. He actually does it with the with uh, oh. Atlantic ma- magazine. If you go back and look in their um, archives, you can read it. Uh, and and he says, you know, that he realized that he – why hadn't he run was the same reason, that he still defined himself as a slave and defined this person as an owner. And in that, on that day when it's raining, and his master is saying, get out there and work in the rain, and he says to himself, I'm going to go out and work in the rain not for my family and not for my comfort and not for my own wealth. But I'm going to do all three of those things for somebody else. My work in the miserable cold rain is to make somebody else comfortable, to make somebody else rich, to make somebody else's family happy. And everything I have belongs to somebody else, even my uh, my future, my labor, everything. And that's when he stops being a slave, when he says, on that level, i got to own myself. And so, you know, and that's, again, what the right of Christiana represents is these people who decide we own ourselves. You know, we're not going to run from you. We have no reason to run from you because we are not runaway slaves anymore. Mm-hmm. We are free men that you are trying to kidnap and enslave, and that's different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting, you know, that, you know, he had a uh... – a political um, victory when, you know, we look at court, you know, cases now in court and how, you know, we're t- particularly around the prison industrial complex and how people who are innocent 
are are being found guilty of crimes they mm-hmm. didn't commit. Whereas here, you know, when you know people of African descent weren't even weren't even recognized as human beings in the Constitution, that mm-hmm. this is a victory. I mean, what a big yeah. deal! Yeah. yeah, it is. I mean, it, it it is so it's so different. I mean, I think one of the reasons is that nowadays I remember reading a thing about um about these lawyers in in uh, in Arizona did a study. And they were talking about, well, what is the state of justice in the United States? And they came to the fact that blacks and poor whites could not get equal justice at all in the United States. And one of the big reasons is they were encouraged to plead guilty nowadays. If you're picked up guilty or innocent, if you're, a, if you're poor or if you're black in general, um, you will be encouraged by your defender to plead guilty just so you don't serve much time. Once you do that, you are a convicted, you know, you're a convicted felon if it was a felony. That goes on your permanent record. It's harder for you to get a job and you can't vote anymore. You're more likely after that to commit a crime, to survive. You know, so it's a trap. In the case of the with the uh defendants at Christiana, it was treason. So they were going to be put to death if found guilty. So they didn't plead. Oh. They decided we have to defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know when when that push and they got and the lawyers like one of their defense lawyers was a member of Congress. You know it beca- it was this huge deal. The prosecuting attorney on the prosecution side was the attorney general of the state of Maryland. Had come up from Maryland to prosecute these guys. Hmm. Um. The only reason it went to trial was because the president of the United States at the time, I think it was Pierce, decides that this has to go to trial, you know, to make the South feel good. Hmm. Um, wow. There were bands <laughs> of Southerners that were just getting their guns and coming up from Maryland and hunting through the area to find any black people they could in, in Pennsylvania, and then there were blacks. All as far north as New York, who were buying up guns to defend themselves. I mean, it really did come really close to starting the Civil War right then. Wow, yeah. And I was just reading that um, uh, that there. Um, I'm trying to think. I think uh, William Parker he wrote uh, an account of his work to aid other blacks um, because he was really active in helping the black community resist this. Gang called the Gap Gang, kidnappers. Mm-hmm. The gang, yeah. They yeah. Were keep, just, yeah. Go ahead. The kidnappers. I mean, it wasn't just a gang. It was that was what they were called by uh, oh. by the people in the area. Is kidnappers because yeah. the Southerners would say, "Well, these are they're getting their property back," and they would say, "No, you're kidnappers." Because what they would do, and this was why the the you want to talk about terrorism when people say, "Oh, terrorism nowadays." Blacks in the North were terrorized by the Southerners because. You could just be walking down the street, and two guys could walk up to you and say – one of them says, you're my property. You're an escaped slave, and you may nev- never have been a slave, and they will just grab you and take you down. It's like in um, you know, in 12 Years a Slave. Yeah. They can just declare you an escapee and take you, mm-hmm. and you have to prove your, your, uh, your freedom, and if you don't have papers, if they don't uh, – uh, and they don't take you to the police officers. They just take you away. 
And if your friends didn't see you, you're gone. And that was just going on all the time. And luckily for some people, there were cases where um, as it started becoming more and more prevalent, especially in towns like Philadelphia and in Boston, places like that, in the bigger cities, they, as soon as something happened, an alarm would go off. You know, The blacks in the area would start setting off alarms, and they would all show up to free the person. And William Parker was the leader of one of these groups. They would beat the, the kidnappers half to death. At one point, William Parker says to a group of guys who were there to – they have snatched some people off the street, and Parker and his men have saved them. And the, the, and the kidnappers are there, and they're all facing Parker, and he says, all of you have to make a choice because I don't have time to bury you all when I kill you. So if you don't want me to just throw your body in the river, you should leave now. Mm. And he's by himself against them, and they all leave. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Because that area, and that's another thing, that whole area of southern Pennsylvania where Parker and and, and, uh, his family were – was famous for chasing the slave, uh, you know, chasing these kidnappers, anybody who who would turn people over or name where the slaves, ex-slaves lived, they were traitors. And so these guys would come after you. They would chase you out of your house. They would chase people all the way back to Maryland, back to the to the border. So they were famous, and that was another reason that these kidnappers and slave owners came to this area because they needed to prove a point. They needed to prove a point that you – Free blacks, um, you're not that free. We can take you anytime we want to, and that's why it all comes down to this battle of what's going to happen. Yeah, and and um, you know, Mr. Parker, he he wrote about um, in the Atlantic Monthly in 1866. He wrote how he and his friends organized the Black Self Defense Organization to prevent the Gap Gang from kidnapping Negroes and selling them as slaves. Um, I'm reading from, mm-hmm. you know, what I told you I found um, uh, online. And on one occasion, they freed a black girl taken from Moses Whitson's farm and administered a beating to the Gap Gang members, resulting in the death of two of the kidnappers. Yes. Wow, they you were serious. Huh? Yeah, they were ser- <laughs> this was like the Black Panthers only then. These yes. were yes. black men walking around. <laughs> Um, and like I said, they had an alert system set up. They were like they could descend on a group of kidnappers and and you know take some justice off of them. So, but again, it's like what a what a frightening thought for the southern slave owners and for a lot of northerners that these black men are doing it themselves. And their network of freeing blacks and re- rescuing people who were being kidnapped, extended all the way. They could get a message, you know, hundreds of miles because they had this I mean, and this wasn't with, you know, the Underground Railroad. This wasn't with a bunch of abolitionists. Uh there were abolitionists who who hated these guys because some of the abolitionists were very much like Garrison, people who were very much we shouldn't use violence. It's all got to be peaceful. Mhm. And so right. Parker and his men were like, "No, it's by any means necessary." You know, we have to – if somebody gets snatched off the street, it's not time to have a meeting. It's not time to make a sign. It's not time to ha- hold hands and sing songs. It's time to save that person. Right. Yeah. Right then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, this is so awesome, Michael. Um, this is going to be – I'm really looking forward to uh, to to being uh, you know in the audience at the 
stage reading that's going to be directed by you as well, um, Michael Jean Sullivan, Fugitive Slave Act, uh, this Saturday, tomorrow, June 7th at 2 p.m., and it's presented by Lorraine Bansbury Theater, uh, this stage reading, and the Museum of the African Diaspora at the Contemporary Jewish Museum, which is located at two, excuse me, at 736 Mission Street in San Francisco. Um, Michael, why don't you give people your, your website so they can stay in touch with you because, you know, you're just, you know, always doing some wonderful things and, you know, not to mention um, they can see you on stage at the uh, San Francisco Mime Troupe uh, season opening on July 4th. Uh, is it going to be at the um, at the park that is always uh, opens at in San Francisco? Oh yeah, the Mime Troop show is going to open uh, at Dolores Park. Though this year, since half of Dolores Park is being uh, renovated, we're going to open kind of on on the southern side. Okay. But um, yeah, and and the Mime Troop show Ripple Effect is about kind of what's happening in San Francisco with gentrification, but also about how the working class here is being divided and set against themselves. We are being set against each other, while you know, the developers and the corporations are benefiting from us fighting against each other. And that we have to see the working class, our fellow members of the working class, as our allies and not our enemies. Right. And then I also have a show, uh, the Labor Fest. You know, Labor Fest happens every year oh, in San yeah. Francisco. And they're doing a, we're going to do a reading of my, of another show of mine on the 28th, um, which is my radical um, at stage adaptation of A Christmas Carol. You mean yeah. it's going to be on June 28th? Is yeah, on June. Okay. No, no, on July 28th. Sorry. No, okay. July 28th. Okay. So it's a little ways away. Um, Christmas and, Carol. Okay. Yeah. And then I have another show opening <laughs> at uh, – I've been doing a lot of writing. Uh, I took last year off and I was just writing. I have a show opening at uh, Central Works this oh. fall in Berkeley that uh, my wife, Alina Brown, is going to be in. She's actually in all of these. Um, cool. She's going to be doing uh, – she's going to be in a show called Recipe. Which is a, oh. a all woman political farce. Okay. Um, that's also kind of based on a historically true story about the uh, when Homeland Security uh, uh, infiltrated this small group of bakers. They were just they were like political pe- women who got together and cooked muffins and stuff. And the, mm-hmm. uh, Homeland Security in, uh, actually sent somebody in to get into that group. So I wrote a a, a comedy kind of about that. Okay. Um, so yeah. well, we'll have you on again, Michael, because you're just, you know, we can't cover it all in one one <laughs> breath. But we definitely want people to know about Fugitive Slave Act, which is tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Don't want to miss this, particularly before, um, you know, we see it uh, on stage, the stage I reading. Hope so. really something. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Wow. Well, it's always really great. Michael, what's your website? Is it your name? Oh, yeah. Michael Jean Sullivan. Uh, Michael Jean Sullivan. M- M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Michael. Gene, G-E-N-E, Sullivan, S-U-L-L-I-V-A-N, dot com. Okay, super. Well, thank you so much. I'll definitely see you tomorrow. (laughs) So that was uh, Michael Gene Sullivan talking about Fugitive Slave Act, and I put a link to his website uh, as well as to the play if you're interested in seeing that. So we're going to play a couple of songs and then um, see if I can get um, the uh, interview up uh, for uh, Jacqueline Olive speaking about her her um, her feature length wonderful film, her first film, Always in Season. <laughs> Na kwa mane mo kwa mane 
Ah, wow, that was Nova Lima and um, Africa Londo, but it was really dragging. I don't know what was going on there. That's not that's not the way it's supposed to sound, so I don't know what was happening there. Hmm. So um, trying to, I was trying to get that interview up for you with um, Jacqueline Olive, and I am not having any success right at the moment. So, um, so I'm going to play uh, a rebroadcast of an interview with uh, director Kathleen Dowdy, uh, director of John Lewis, Get in the Way, uh, you know, our fearless congressman who was dancing, you know, at uh, Elmina Castle this year for the 400th uh, anniversary of the year of, of African um, uh, enslavement and the year of return to Ghana and um some members of Congress and uh, Senator Nancy Pelosi went, and uh, this is a beautiful picture of the Congress. Uh, the um, uh, let's see the um, the Black congressional leadership uh, there, and he was just so filling the spirit. It was really beautiful. So I'm going to play that, and and perhaps I'll have it together so that you can listen to the um, the interview with uh, Jacqueline Olive. For Friday, um, however, if you want to listen to it before then, uh, it was it was uh, the interview happened on uh, October 18th, so you can go to the archive and listen to it there. Um, really powerful interview. So here is uh, Kathleen Dowdy uh, with uh, talking about um, John Lewis getting the way. Okay. So you said you just got back from Houston. Yes, we were showing the film at the University of Houston, uh, and it was sponsored by the uh, African American Studies program there. And um, what was great about it is that the audience was so informed. They, you know, they're all studying African American history, so they knew all the stories, and their questions were very uh, in depth. <laughs> and we just went on and on. I think I think it was like a ninety minute Q and A. In the film. <laughs> wow, that is so awesome. Yeah. yeah, I was just thinking about, you know, the uh, graphic novels March and I really, really love those uh, yeah. about about um, you know, uh, the honorable um representative um uh, Lewis and and just the way I mean, you know, you're just like at his house, you know, the film is just so relaxed. I mean, it's just, I mean, we go to, like, this barbecue for the community, and he says how he goes home to get charged, and and then he's, yeah. like, dancing in the street, you know, at a, <laughs> at a gay pride parade with his yeah. pretty pink shirt on, and <laughs> wow, and then, you know, for the, the health bill, you know, how you have him holding hands with um, with the uh, speaker, you know, and yeah. Pelosi, that was so sweet, oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, they were asking uh also last night about uh you know why the intimacy of the film and mm-hmm. i think uh, a lot of it is is the southernness um i'm oh. from originally from washington dc but grew up in a uh southern family and there's something about that culture that i think is just uh it's relaxed mm-hmm. <laughs> people make fun of it but it is a much uh, slower paced um, you know, and and I I think that that really comes across, especially in the family reunion, where we're you know it's it's uh, the black belt of Alabama, and uh, you know there there is um, a, a familiarity and a, a 
very closely knit community that we were just um we just couldn't stop shooting at that reunion. It was just so every every place we turned it was just so rich. Uh, and uh, I think it, it reveals a lot about who he is as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then he he was so young. I mean, when he heard about heard Martin Luther King Jr. on the radio, and then and then to be able to meet the man. And yes, I mean he wouldn't have known that that this would be the trajectory, right? Yeah. Like yeah. wow, wow. Yeah. It's interesting. I I think one of the things that was attractive to me about uh, the congressman's story is mm-hmm. is the very fact that he did start so young mm-hmm. and that uh there I think it was Eleanor Holmes Norton that said there would have been um no movement without the students and mm-hmm. that they were the energy in a lot of cases behind particularly the confrontational um events and that that is something that I think the congressman wants to emphasize today that it's the, the fire of youth is um is indispensable when these movements start to to build and convincing young people that they do have a voice that their voice is very important mm-hmm. to be part of these movements and and that there is a history of um of youth in these movements and i think congressman lewis really exemplifies that mm-hmm. yeah 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 i just love the stories about you know the chicken congregation that was so funny oh my god <laughs> anybody that knows the congressman will the first thing they'll say is have you heard the chicken story yes <laughs> And I think at one point we were we were asking on, on Capitol Hill we were asking <laughs> each of the congressmen I think we interviewed like um, nine Congress people mm. when they first heard the chicken story they all knew it mm. they all knew it and so they told their version of it we were going to put a whole sequence together with just <laughs> all the people how they remembered the chicken story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, and and I didn't even know that his mother was still alive. That was well, beautiful. she she's she has passed since then. That was shot in uh, 1990. Oh, so. you've been working on this film that long? Oh yeah, yeah. That's the <laughs> the big wow. story. Uh, yeah, we started shooting in the early 90s. Hmm. Uh, I was living in Atlanta at the time, which is how it all kind of got started. And uh, we shot for a couple of years then couldn't really get the momentum to raise funds and shoot it, so we put it away for a while. And uh, it was, yeah, it sat on my closet shelf for uh, about 15 years. <laughs> wow. Kind of, you know, when are we going to get back to that? And finally, I think uh, when many of the civil rights leadership started getting a lot of national press, connected with uh, Barack Obama running for president, mm-hmm. uh, and Lewis was started to get a lot of national attention especially, we started to feel like, okay, we should we should finish it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we met with the congressman in Washington, and uh, we showed him actually some of the, the footage from that reunion, mm-hmm. which at that point was almost 20 years old, actually. Wow. And he was just all oh, a lot of people in those sequences had passed away and oh. he was just in tears. I mean it was mm. very moving and um and he said, 
finish it, mm-hmm. get it done. So that's what we did. <laughs> wow. So you mentioned your team uh, a few times. Who's your team? <laughs> well, it's it's changed over the years, but the current team that I have is has been fantastic. Um, we have an executive producer, uh, Charles Boyd Johnson, who is um, a uh, the EP on uh, NCIS. He's a television executive here, but was also a producer on Red Tails, George Lucas's film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's been just amazing, and um, Donna Brangillon is our consulting producer who has a long track record at HBO uh, and uh, a lot of documentary background. Uh, Lillian Benson was the editor on the film who cut her teeth on the original Eyes on the Prize. Was really? One of her early early career um, wow. yeah, accomplishments. So, And she was very uh, – everybody was just so enthused about making a film about the congressman mm-hmm. and um their you know their love and respect for him was was key i think in in bringing the very all the very um sort of the threads of the of the story together we had a terrific uh composer mm-hmm. uh Kamara Cambone who um did an amazing job with the music and uh and then our DP our cameraman um mm-hmm. Chip Schneer who is um did a great job. I mean, it was really a, a, a sort of dream team. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, I see um, Dr. Claiborne Carson, who is, who is from our neck of the woods, you know, at That's Stanford right. University uh, with the Martin Luther King Jr. papers. I see he's one of your historical consultants. He was fabulous. Uh, he, I think um, he has that great combination of both being a, a very – accomplished historian but also someone who is understands media mm-hmm. and and uh can fuse the two so uh you know it's i've always felt very comfortable he was a historian on an earlier film i did about uh a newspaper editor ralph mcgill um from atlanta who was mm-hmm. also during the civil rights movement and uh clay can look at a cut and just his notes are just, they just cut through everything. It's like, did you think about this? <laughs> <laughs> and you'd go, hmm, and then we'd talk about that for a few, you know, a little while. And then he'd say, and then, you know, and if they're not specific things, but they're just, um, he just, I'm sure he's a fabulous teacher. He just kind of points you in the direction and is confident that you'll figure out how to do it. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's a very, val- very valuable consultant. really relied on him a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you you, you probably you know, already knew his film, All Him, the Martin Luther King Jr. and King, Martin Luther King in Palestine, you know, where, you know, he took um, these this, this choir from here, you know, from, Cal- from I think somewhere in California, but it was um, larger than just California. And then they went, to Palestine and produced this play about um, what Martin Luther King Jr. stood for, you know, the civil rights movement, from their perspectives, and uh, it was really, really good. Um, yeah, I yeah. haven't seen that. Oh, you haven't? Okay, yeah, that was t- 2013, but you know, you were busy raising money. And <laughs> 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 it's your film. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's true. I have a feeling you have some experience in this field. <laughs> uh, well, no, I've talked to enough directors to know, but 
I don't know, you might you might have folks be with the nineteen nineties like wow that was a long time ago <laughs> yeah you know it's funny because it's not it, it's it's one of the things I think that gives the mm-hmm. film a real grounding because you literally see him aging mm-hmm. um, in the film I mean a, a friend who who watched it was really funny he said I could tell you know what time when when the document the interviews were done by how much hair he had <laughs> It just gets less and less as he gets older. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, it's just really something, you know, just learning the story about how he ended up, um, you know, running for Congress, you know, against his buddy uh, um, Julian Bond. It's like, wow, that's so interesting. It's, and, um, it's a very well-known story in Atlanta when I was oh, there. Oh, you know, okay. Was, everybody told it. Mm. But I've been surprised. You're right. Since we started showing it around the country, a lot of people had never heard it. No, and we didn't. I didn't know of it. Of course, it's a, it's an, yeah, it's just, um, it's not only an amazing story in terms of um, their friendship and, mm. and what happened and also the sort of social and political makeup of Atlanta at the time, um, but for us, I guess it was uh, a very important story to show him, to show the congressman, you know, as someone who did have very um, developed political instincts at that mm-hmm. point and um, had a, a passion to win. And and I, I don't want to give away what happens right. <laughs> for people who haven't seen it, but um, it's it's a side of his personality that uh, we felt was very important to show in the film mm-hmm. and to include. Yeah, yeah, and then and then you know all that archival footage, you know, with him in this because he was getting arrested and beaten, and I mean he was like right there, like in he the was. in the mix, literally. Um, and you're thinking like, whoa! And then he speaks about. Um, you know, you know him using him putting his body in. Do you remember what he said exactly? Yeah, put well. Um, or something, you know, paraphrase. Yeah, it's putting yourself <laughs> in harm's way is yeah, the phrase they use yeah. a lot. And mm-hmm. um, and there are there are a few moments when he talks about nonviolence that are so. Um, on the one hand, they're so moving, and then after you think about what he said, you think. I don't know if I could ever do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. just, it's so, um, to, you know, to, to see, a, a, you know, 300 white people with, you know, clubs running at you, you know, mm-hmm. and attacking you. And to, instead of running to hold hands and sing, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's just, uh, it's an extraordinary um ability and I'm not sure I think it's it's very spiritually rooted for Congressman mm-hmm. Lewis I'm, in fact I'm sure it is mm-hmm. um, but we you know those of us who, who sort of come at it from the outside and hear these stories feel like on the one hand uh, how of course it makes sense in a way that it is true that if you you know if you turn to violence it's a it's a sort of a spiral downward it's not it's not something that's easy to stop mm-hmm. and revenge is a you know is a is a very um destructive passion over time and this is nonviolence is a, you know a, a definitely an alternative to that but uh schooling people in it and 
teaching them the discipline of it and the philosophy of it and and not just teaching them but but you know becoming uh training them to be disciples of it i think is a um is is hard because our we've grown up in a culture where it's it's not looked upon as um it looks it, you know what they, people think that it's not you are not able to survive if you choose to to follow that mm-hmm. uh nonviolence and i think it's you know it's true we've lost people we've lost many people mm-hmm. um but i think that uh the congressmen and those who are very uh committed to it feel like it's the only answer and um certainly i believe dr king believed that too mhm yeah yeah he he definitely sort of embodied the beloved community concept i mean he he walks it Mm-hmm. Every single day, and mm-hmm. and he says, you know, in your film that the vote is precious, that is sacred, is the most powerful tool we have, and um, you know, and you know, we watch him, you know, at the polling place. You know, it's like, well, he's going to like a regular polling place. This is mm-hmm. really cool in the community, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. casting his vote. You know, it's like, wow. It was almost a, it was almost a religious experience to mm-hmm. watch that. I yep. think. Um, mm-hmm. You know he he gets all dressed up, you know, and we rode in the car with him to to the um, his polling place and you know followed him and of course everybody knows him, you know he walks in and it's <laughs> like the congressman, but he just you know he kept his his head down uh, and you could see what he says in the film that he he thinks about all the people that he knew who didn't have that opportunity to vote. Mm-hmm. And um, on the day when he casts his ballot, I think that becomes very present in his mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, for the ancestors, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you show us footage, um, you know, in the film of, you know, black people standing in line to register the vote. And, mm-hmm. and there's one woman, boy, the policeman's just like pushing her with his stick. I mean, yes, really, um, really pushing her. Who is that? That's Amelia Boynton, who was oh. uh, one of the community leaders for the Selma campaign mm. and uh, just uh, a force. Uh, you talk to people who were part of that campaign even today. Andrew Young and, and C.T. Vivian were both involved in it. And she um, she came out of the community, so she was respected within the community. She wasn't one of the outsiders, the so-called outsiders. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, she was targeted. Um, that was Sheriff Jim Clark, um, who sort of collars her and hauls her away. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they didn't, you know, they, people put their life on the line mm-hmm. in those, in those uh, events. And it was very, it's very moving to see a willingness to to do that for uh, a cause that you might not actually see accomplished in your own lifetime, but it's something that it's you know they, I think she and Congressman Lewis and and everybody in those campaigns felt like this is the time we've got to try to make it happen now, and you know we've got the you know we've got the the commitment to do it, and you know we're going to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people might be familiar with the um, <clears throat> the feature film um, 
about um, Martin Luther King Jr., um, uh, Ava DuVernay's. Um, yes, the uh, Selma. Yes, Selma, yeah. right, yeah, and uh, <laughs> and the fiery young man, you know, <laughs> John Lewis. That's right. Yeah, and so. Stephen James was the actor, mm-hmm. uh, and he, he, I thought he really, I mean, he, he, I think he captured Lewis very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we see your film and see the real man, it's like, yeah, he did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and uh, and so we get a chance to see, you know, Congressman Lewis talking about remembering, you know, um, the march and and the, and why the march, you know, because this this man had been killed. And and the community wanted to honor his memory. What's what uh what's the name of the man um who was killed? Oh, um as soon as you ask me I lost it. I'll have it in a minute. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and so um but he didn't have approval. It was so interesting, you know, the young folks and the older folks, because King wasn't that old. <laughs> but he wasn't no. twenty six either. Mm-hmm. Um uh but the you know, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was, you know, more established, you know, black men and women, but I think mostly I always see just men. Um, and then you've got the young folks, you know, in the, um, in the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee with Lewis as its um, chairman. And um, and I, I don't think I knew um, about, you know, sort of the strife around around marching or not marching. Yes. Yeah, I think yes. that's new information for me. And that was in um, Ava DuVernay's film, I, oh. I believe. Well, I don't um, remember it. Oh, yeah. you know, yeah, I do remember. I remember the character now, but it, it didn't yeah. stay with me. So, so anyway, it's like new information again. <laughs> yeah, but it was. It's some of this back as one of the way, ways that we sort of decided which stories to tell in the film mm-hmm. was that we wanted there to be um, a, a kind of shift in Lewis's perspective mm-hmm. as a result of things that happened usually behind the scenes. So at the March on Washington, of course, it was how his speech was changed mm-hmm. and right. the sort of uh, internal struggle um, among the various civil rights groups of the time about what would be said at that march. Um, and And in the process, of course, I think Congressman Lewis had one a, a very formative lesson in compromise, mm-hmm. which of course he's become a master <laughs> since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Selma, of course, it was yeah. There was a, a break uh, within his own organization, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and um, which later very I guess it was within the next year. Um, he was voted out of his chairmanship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like wow. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, you know, this, you know, sort of showing us, reflecting on that period of like, okay, what do I do next? Mm-hmm. <laughs> where's, mm-hmm. where's my place? Because mm-hmm. he says, these, this, these are my comrades. These, this is my family. That's right. And I That's love right. these folks. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, yeah, it's really, really. Um, yeah, it's great sort of externalizing his thinking for us, you know, in in the film. So we could see um, you know, his connection to um Robert Kennedy, mm-hmm. um which I don't think I'd ever known of before. Mm-hmm. And and then him talking about, you know, when Johnson signed the uh 
the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act. Which one was the first? It's the Voting Rights Act. So, yeah. yeah, and how King, I think a tear flew. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, that was kind of cool because he was there. You know, I was like, that's nice. Well, and, and I mean, there had been they had seen that that had been such a long struggle. Oh yeah. And there had mm-hmm. been so many deaths and injuries. I mean, it was. Uh, I think, on the one hand, there I'm sure. There was some feeling that it could never happen, and and yet, of course, the Selma March uh, was instrumental in sort of pushing it um, into the forefront of uh, President Johnson's agenda, mm-hmm. and and he in turn uh, getting the congressional um, approval for it. But it was very, I I think we can't imagine the the hardship that went into getting to the point of that bill actually being signed. And, and uh, it was, you know, I'm sure it was very moving. Of course, it, uh, you know, it was <laughs> made it all the more poignant when in 2013 the Supreme Court basically gutted it mm-hmm. um, with the Shelby County decision. And um, that was a very... When that happened, we were still in production, and you know, we were just we got the news. And it was like, oh my God, mm-hmm. we just did this huge story about the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Now, and you know, it's, it's 50 years later, it's being you know, taken apart. Uh, and then when we thought about it, we felt like, you know, this is this is really true to life. This is the way um, democracy works. That mm-hmm. you know, you you achieve what seems like an impossible accomplishment. You get this Voting Rights Act passed. And I think Harry Reid said it very well. He said, you know, you have to be careful, you know, and these, these, you, you can't take these things for granted because it's always possible that, you know, things will go back to, way, to the way they used to be. Mm-hmm. And that Shelby County decision is just a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and then and then we think about uh, the more recent um, presidential um, <clears throat> election where so many people didn't vote, um, yes. and it's like such a close um, uh, close count between you know Clinton and Trump, mm-hmm. and who knows um, what would have happened if everyone would have voted. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I had known that, you know, after you know the first um, was it, and I think there were three three marches, right? The three Selmas marches. There were three. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the one where um, if, you know people were really injured, that particular one, which um, I'm not sure if that was on March seventh or not, um, when he just describes, you know, the sea of blue, and that's the troopers, mm-hmm. and and he said, "Let us kneel and pray." And I was like, dang, that was, like, so wrong. I'm uh, like, you see them like, oh, my God, like they can't even leave. Yeah. Disperse, yeah. and it's like, no time to disperse. Yeah. 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 No, I think the first time I heard him tell that story, <laughs> it's just, and he, and he says it, it's just, it's just very uh, calm. His deliveries mm-hmm. are just so calm. and But what he's talking about is just so intensely dramatic and you're just thinking that's how he did it he had that calm he was able to in the force of that 
enormous physical threat right in front of him, he could just say, let's kneel and pray. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whereas most people would <laughs> be running the other, way, the other way. And I think that is really a clue to how he, how deep his commitment to this, this practice of nonviolence is. But mm-hmm. uh, he, you know, he is extraordinarily centered and uh, does not get flustered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that is, you know, that enabled a lot of other people. He inspired other people to, to follow him because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. And um, I, I don't know, I don't think I knew that there were demonstrations afterwards uh, in 80 major cities. Um, oh, yeah. It's like, wow, that, that sounds like most of the country. <laughs> yes. Well, the footage was so raw. Um, mm. Remember that was the oh, time yeah. when, mm-hmm. you know, they were still shooting film, and it took overnight to get it processed and, mm-hmm. and on the air. And by the time it, it showed on television, it was, I mean, it's funny because we see it now. I mean, it still looks horrible, but, mm-hmm. you know, we've seen, we've become so saturated with violence that, you know, it it doesn't, I think we can imagine how shocking it was to audiences in 1965. Mm -hmm. And that to think that that was happening in our country where, you know, hang on, Mm -hmm. um, that you could see a, you know, a sort of, it was like a wing of Alabama State Troopers just attacking unarmed people. Mm-hmm. Uh, was It was horrific, and I think it moved people very quickly to, to um, register their, you know, anger about it. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and in fact, of course, that is, you know, that plus the, the other march, the march that was the long one all the way to Montgomery, right. was it gave Johnson, you know, the, the wind at his back to be able to um, get that bill passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's really great the way you juxtapose the march um, from Selma to Montgomery, uh, the capital, with the, the march from, uh, you know, the bill being introduced for um, affordable health care for all to its its passage because there's a similar march. It's only, mm-hmm. you know, it's not as long mm-hmm. <laughs> as the, mm-hmm. what was it, um, what, 5,000-something other, uh, yeah. yeah, miles, or I don't know, maybe not 5,000, but 5,000 people. Anyway, it was a long march. People, it, it took days and days to get there. Um, but just watching, you know, sort of the congressman um, and others, you know, walk up, you know, into the, the chambers and they're being attacked, mm-hmm. even even though they have security. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one person, um, he spit on. And, yeah. I, and I'm thinking, and then and then you think, you know, you talk, you you mention um, uh, the congressman and how, you know, he's got, uh, he doesn't let others ruffle him. He sort of like has this stillness he could tap into, this center of calm that he mm-hmm. can, and he tells people, you know, like, 
and you, I think you asked sort of what he was thinking or something like that. I'm not sure. Did I? Am I remembering correctly? Um, what 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 he was thinking when he was um, walking through all those people? Yeah, that were, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he talks about looking straight ahead, not getting, mm-hmm. not staring at people. It's actually exactly what he described when he sat in at the lunch counters. Mm-hmm. You keep your head, so, you know, you keep keep your head like straight ahead, keep your eye on the prize, don't let people distract you, don't stare at people, don't show any kind of aggression. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's quite, a, quite a discipline, but I think it, it has served him. Clearly it works for him. Oh, yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it, it, in that case it was Congressman Cleaver who was spat on, and uh, he was very much... Um, looked to Congressman Lewis as far as how to respond to that and marched forward, you know, and didn't get into a fight and didn't, you know, uh, talk back or get drawn into a confrontation with this person who basically spit in his face. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's a, it's a, just an extraordinary um, uh, discipline and, and, again, commitment that uh, I... I admire enormously. Uh, You know, I think it's hard for some of us to imagine being cast into situations like that. And, and, you know, you can't help but wonder, well, could I do that, you know? Right. (laughs) I don't know. Do you have a few more minutes? I do, yeah. Okay. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about... um, uh, the uh, the activist John Lewis, um, you know, now um, more like you know an establishment man, but he you know <laughs> he's definitely disruptive, um, and uh, you know as as a congressman, and 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 you tell the story really well in the film about his decision to um, uh, to be a member of government, you know, to be a leader in the government because I think people were actually suggesting that he run for something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish you could tell us that story, and um, yeah, because um, I, I think that's really a, a highlight of, of the film as well. Like, I think it was interesting when um, President Obama was, uh, like Congressman Lewis, started his career as an activist. Mm-hmm. And I remember mm-hmm. when he was running for president, people would ask, well, what, you know, why did you get into politics? And he said he just became so frustrated as an activist that mm. he couldn't get anything done. And he felt that if he went into politics, he would be more able to make change. And I think that was almost exactly uh, what happened with Congressman Lewis. I think he he had been a, a very, very dedicated activist, but I think ultimately... Uh, his ambition in, in terms of, of seeing change happen was such that he needed to practice uh, his his work in a, in a different arena, and I think he saw politics as that arena. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was interesting. We, we had, of course, uh, we had to skip over um, a fair amount of time in the film just because we couldn't tell every story, but... <laughs> His first uh, political, his first elected position was as a city councilman in Atlanta. Oh, okay. Yeah, and he was, I think he was there for two terms, 
maybe a little longer. Mm-hmm. He also served um, under President Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, in, oh. I think, as part of the uh, VISTA campaign, which was the domestic version of the Peace Corps. Okay. Um, so he had spent some time in Washington. He'd been um, city councilman in Atlanta, but stepping into the um, the congressional race was a, a very big step for him. I think uh, clearly something he wanted, um, and uh, you know felt that uh, he he could win. And um, and you know it, I think it was interesting when uh, Reverend Vivian talked about how when. Congressman Lewis won the seat, the congressional seat that he now has, and he was he said how fearful he was mm-hmm. that um, Congressman Lewis's integrity could be uh, a liability for him in Congress. Mm. I well, just felt like right. it, yeah, that was that great. so mm-hmm. much about yeah. <laughs> how we perceive politicians, mm-hmm. and uh, and I, but. Uh, Reverend Vivian is not alone. I think a lot of people felt that 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 people perceived him as naive mm-hmm. and um, a, a deeply spiritual person, but someone who would basically get knocked around in you know a place as uh, as potentially um, uh, you know. Uh, confrontational, I guess, as as the U.S. Congress and and where people do have very uh, self, sort of, self-preservation is a big (laughs) motivator for a lot of people's actions. And that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, juggling and, you know, backstabbing and throwing people under the bus and all kinds of stuff that that we're very familiar with in the film industry. (laughs) Uh, But I think... uh, when Congressman Lewis first went to Washington as a, as a representative of Atlanta, I think there was some fear that uh, he wouldn't last, and that he would sort of get get uh, sort of trampled in the fray. And of course, that was over 30 years ago, and he is still there. Uh, so, I mean, I'm sure that there were some some hard knocks along the way, but again, uh, I think he was um, underestimated in terms of his both his uh, commitment to what he was he wanted to do and what he what he wants to have happen uh, as a congressman, and also his uh, the skills that he had learned as an activist. And, you know, dealing with things like having your speech changed for the March on Washington and having the organization that represents you basically split down the middle and, you know, throw you out. I mean, he had had uh, experiences that may not have – they weren't in the U.S. Congress. They weren't in Washington. They weren't part of that world. And yet I think they were very – very effective in preparing him for what he walked into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I want you to talk a little bit about about his wife and his. Um, does he have a son? Yes. Yeah, yes. and then also um, I saw another film um, about Julius Rosenwald and and the schools that the Rosenwald schools that um, he um, built in collaboration with. Um, 
uh, Booker T. Washington and the community. So these these Rosenwald schools were in the black community in the South. And uh, Congressman Lewis is in the film, and he talks about, um, you know, going to one of those schools. Yes. Yeah, yes. and I was like, yes. oh. And, yeah. and I think his brother, he talked about his brother as well, um, and he talked about using you know, the Sears catalogs, um, you know, it's like a wish book. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah, um, so I I, I don't know. Do you want me to talk about Rosenwald or which? which Yeah, talk about Rosenwald first, and then we'll we'll go, we'll talk about it. So, I I mean, I, again, you may know more about this than I do. I, I didn't realize that the school that the congressman had gone to was one of those schools, but, of course, he and his siblings, when we were at the family reunion mm-hmm. and interviewing them, talked quite a bit about going to school. Um, and that, of course, this was Jim Crow South. This was every school was segregated. Um, but that also the the African American schools were uh, gr- vastly inferior of course, to the white schools, and they talked about having the getting the hand me down books that were all marked up and ripped and torn and whatever and and um they were not they walked to school whereas the um white kids had buses and it was um i don't know it was i think on the one hand a, a very community um, building experience because mm-hmm. it was clear that you belong to this community and then there was this other more privileged community over there and but you had your people and you stuck together and if you just sort of followed the rules you would be okay but then all, at the same time I think it was just a very humiliating experience to to feel that somehow you didn't rate high enough to get the bus or to get the new books, you know, or all of the things that that were, um, you were basically not uh, given access to. The congressman couldn't have, he couldn't get a library card, you know, and this was a, clearly a very bright and imaginative child, and his, you know, access to the outside world was largely through reading and the radio. And uh, I think he was just so hungry for that. Uh, and I think he did find ways to, to you know, get, get access to newspapers and, and, and books. But it was, um, it was, I think it was always a hurdle. And, and uh, on the other hand, I, you know, I don't know the story about the Rosenwald um, schools, but I know that before Rosen, Julius Rosenwald built those schools, there was nothing. I mean, there was really nothing. Right. <laughs> and, yep. you know, so in that sense, the fact that they were there was at least a, a, a first step forward and, mm-hmm. um, of course, led to, to much better later. Right, yeah, yeah. And you show in, in the film um, uh, Representative uh, Lewis wanted to be a a minister, and so he's going to seminary, right? School. That's right. <laughs> and there's like so many jokes around him and being a public speaker and singing and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he takes it all really good humorly, you know, with good humor. It's so funny. But 
from what I understand, he did he did finish at seminary. It's just he wasn't able to go to his graduation, right? So yeah, he went to the American Baptist Seminary in Nashville, and uh, it was we have great stories. You know, we did a lot of interviewing around that mm-hmm. of of his years there. Uh, I think it was uh, initially a, just a, a breath of fresh air for him that mm-hmm. here he he came to a city, Nashville, where. Um, you know, he was. It was an integrated city. It was. Well, I guess I shouldn't say integrated city, but he was exposed to uh, probably more white people than he had ever seen in his life. Mm-hmm. And um, although I think the seminary was Af- largely African American, he was um, able to mix with other colleges. Nashville, of course, has a quite a few uh, colleges. I've, I've forgotten how many, but there are quite a few. He was sort of exposed to a lot of the students uh, at other colleges, Fisk and um, uh, what, what are the others? Mahari. Um, mm. There's a, there's quite a few there. Mm-hmm. And particularly in the National Sit-ins, of course, they were, students were coming from all of those schools to be part of that. So, um, but it, it's interesting. He so he was at the seminary, I believe, when he went on the freedom rides, and as he says in the film, yes, missed his graduation mm-hmm. because he was in jail in Jackson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then I think what happened uh, was that after the freedom rides, mm-hmm. uh, I think Dr. King helped him get a scholarship to Fisk oh. because he finished his degree then at Fisk. Oh so, wow! Okay. Yeah. Oh, nice. That's really nice. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think we saw um, uh, Mrs. Lewis um, holding uh, her son uh, in, I think, when the congressman was getting sworn in or yes. something? Yes. Okay. Yeah, but we don't ever see any family thing happening yeah. <laughs> with them. So, you know, there, there, were, there were several issues. First was that we didn't have... <laughs> We only had an hour, and oh my God, the guy has such a life. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was like, what are you going to pick? The other thing that happened is that when we went back to resume shooting the film in um, 2011, mm-hmm. um, Lillian Lewis was uh, ill and bedridden and oh. not really able to be interviewed, mm-hmm. and um, and there were there were issues around that as well that we just um, we sort of felt that it was a, a private um, sort of situation and that um, we had been able to film the family reunion, so we felt like we did show at least a part of his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a little, I, I'm disappointed that we couldn't include her because for many of the people whom we interviewed around the uh, Julian Bond John Lewis campaign, mm-hmm. we learned that she had been very, very involved in uh, both persuading him to go for the congressional seat and then campaigning with him, and that she had been not only enormously supportive but also very involved in his campaigning for um, to go to Washington. Mm-hmm. So we had wanted to be able to to tell that whole story and um but it was you know it just it was like a lot of other people talking about her but her voice wasn't there mm-hmm. so it made it but the timing was 
you, you know, this was a consideration that you wanted it to air around his birthday? Well, no, actually it was, PBS wanted it to be part of Black History Month. Okay. And <laughs> then it was just a question of, you know, what are the dates that we can get common carriage? We wanted, of course, the film to show nationally mm-hmm. um, at the same time and date. And um, so this was the, they were, it was interesting too because they programmed it, there's um Smokey Robinson is being honored at the Library of Congress Lifetime oh. Achievement Awards. Oh, nice. And that program is preceding ours on PBS. So oh. Oh. That was another. That's why. It's, that's why your show, your um, the film is screening so late. <laughs> that's right. Oh. It's just it's coming right off of that show, mm-hmm. and they felt that. Uh, it, it, so they're both Black History Month specials, right. and I think they thought that they they paired well together, which I think they probably will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, interesting, interesting. So um, when is the film available, and are there going to be any outtakes? Because, you know, since you started so long ago. Oh, and wait a second, before I ask that question, you said you had an hour. What What did you mean by that, one hour? It's an, it's a, well, the Oh, to make the film, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> okay. the running time is, is uh, well, in P- PBS world, it's more like 54 minutes mm-hmm. but yes. yeah it's a, it's an hour long program right yeah so what do you do with the rest of all the <laughs> great footage and all these great stories that you couldn't share darn um yeah, yeah no so. well we we will definitely be putting some bonus material together for uh down the road um especially when we start um making it available to schools because uh there's just so much more there mm-hmm. um, but, uh, you know, I think there's, you know, at some point you have to kind of make the decision how long the program should be, mm-hmm. you know, what people. One of the things that we were really interested in when we started, we started showing it about a year ago uh, in sort of special screenings around the country. And mm-hmm. people really want to talk about it when it's over. Mm-hmm. And we felt like when you do an 80, 90-minute film, there's not a lot of time after that for discussion. Um, but a 60-minute film gives, you know, it, it sort of opens up a window for an, an evening event especially um, for people to really talk and exchange ideas. And that's a very important part of um, this film for me is that people go away with something that is relatable to them and their lives. And I think that often comes as a result of... Um, being able to to talk with people after about you know things that's just what we're you know just as we are like what <laughs> struck them and was was there something that upset them or you know did they were you know did they wonder about x y or z and the, and uh, you know we've had some extremely lively discussions after this film uh, about all kinds of subjects, people tend to zero in on different things. According, you know, depending on what their interests are and what their own lives are about. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a lot of the reason that we we went ahead and did um, the one hour version of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, firstly, I would still stay for the talk if you would have made it eighty or ninety minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> Because you're not going to be at the screen, and you won't be able to tell us all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it's interesting because I know there's going to be a screening in Washington. Some of the congressional mm-hmm. members of Congress in the film have been appearing with it. I know mm-hmm. um, Representative uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton is appearing in, late in February at a screening in Washington. Nice, nice. Um, Representative Larson has appeared in Hartford with it. And, mm-hmm. you know, and they know him well, too. I mean, they've been, you know, colleagues of his on Capitol Hill for many, many years and are, uh, you know, bring a whole different perspective to the screenings. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's good, too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, um, I, I like when he says um, toward the end of the film, I never become bitter or hostile. Uh, he said, this is politics. Mm-hmm. You get up, you find a way to get in the way. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. This to is build a lasting peace. He said, this is politics. This is a business that we choose to be in, mm-hmm. which I think is really an important line. Yes. Because, you know, you don't, people don't have to be politicians. That's true. <laughs> you, you choose, and, and when you get into it, you got to know that it's going to be rough, mm-hmm. you know? It's not, it doesn't, it's not for, you know, quiet, introverted people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah it's, it's just, he's just such a great model, you know, because he's not the one necessarily that you would think of as, you know, being, um, you know, a public servant for, what, 50 years or so, um, you know, 21 years in Congress. That's like, that's a heck of a long time. Yeah. Um, wow, I mean, and and he could have retired because he's done a whole lot, and you know, but he he just his life is one of public service. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And and I think you you know you touched on something that is interesting that he is not a Julian Bond. Mm-hmm. And I think when we were shooting the film, and we would go out and ask people about him, and you know what what they thought, and we'd often hear people say, you know, well, he. He seems like he's just like me, mm-hmm. and I don't have to be, you know, super accomplished and and go to a great school or have a beautiful figure or face or, you know, uh, you know, have a, a wealthy family or anything. So, I, you know, I can do these things too because he was able to do them, mm-hmm. and I think that really is a very important part of the story that. You know, he's not a Dr. King. Mm-hmm. You know, he he didn't have that sort of background, and yet, um, in so many ways, he's easier to relate to because of that. I think for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I was wondering, in closing, um, and you've been so generous. Thank you for the lovely conversation. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us one of the stories that. Congressman Lewis told you about Dr. King that didn't make it into the film <laughs> because <laughs> you didn't have any question last night. It was really interesting. It's the first the first time I've been getting this. It's like okay, I can tell you one. So <laughs> okay, um, cool. We it's it's not so much a story, but we one of the scenes that we shot that I was really sorry we could not include in the film mm. is that we went to Dr. King memorial on the tidal basin in Washington when it was just being finished. It hadn't opened yet with um, Congressman Lewis. And he puts on the hard hat and he's got the, you know, the vest, the, the reflective vest. And he he basically tours the site. Um, it's a private tour because, you know, it's not open yet. Mm-hmm. And they're still kind of working on different parts of it. And 
and he reflects all through this this little tour about Dr. King and his relationship with him. Uh, and, you know, goes, there's scaffolding up yet around the, the statue of Dr. King, and he's looking up at it, and, you know, he just starts crying, and he's, you know, he calls him um, my brother. He was, he was like a brother to me. And I thought um, that it's it's hard to kind of pinpoint what that relationship was, and because from clearly we don't know what you know how Dr. King felt. We, I mean, Andrew Young says a little bit about it, um, but I think that certainly from Congressman Lewis's perspective, this man, Dr. King, was the man that basically pulled him out of the world that he was born into and set him on a course that he could never have imagined mm -hmm. and truly changed his life. Yeah. And I think uh, in just touring this memorial and seeing finally Dr. King getting the recognition that he so deserves in this very um, significant place, it was it's just directly across from the Lincoln Memorial, mm -hmm. um, that it's it was a, a sort of another moment for Congressman Lewis's sort of satisfaction that this this had happened and that um and that it's a, it was right that it happened the way it did. Mhm. Mm yeah, that would have been nice if that could have, you know, made it into the um the final cut. But uh yeah, thanks for sharing that cuz um yeah, I know the monument um and it does um you know, Dr. King is talking to Lincoln across the way. That's, that's right. That's <laughs> and 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 Dr. King is coming out of a mountain. Yes. Yeah, it's been that yes. difficult. It sort of reminds you of John Henry, you know, so with, you know, the um, steam um, yes. driving man going yeah. through the mountain. It's like, uh -huh. that was heck of hard work, and then he died. Yeah. So it was like, how many of us have ever had to go through a mountain? And then you see King on the other side, and, you know, he came through a mountain, too, mm -hmm. uh, you know, right. symbolically, and it's like, wow. Yeah. I have to say, too, I thought some of the quotes that they had, mm. for your listeners who don't know, the memorial is it's around the statue, sort of behind it is a wall mm -hmm. with these beautiful quotes from Dr. King mm -hmm. all through his career, sort of carved into stone. And they're, they're some of the best, I have to say. They, mm -hmm. they picked them well. Mm -hmm. And when we were shooting, of course, Congressman Lewis was reading them out loud. And oh. it, was just, it was very, I mean, it's, a, it's almost like a little short film, <laughs> the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, in in a way, and yeah, we'll we'll probably put something together from that at some point. Yeah, well, you might know the uh, the memorial that we have in San Francisco at Yerba Buena uh, Gardens, um, and it's uh it's the um, uh, the quote of the waters coming down. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. then so you walk, so it's like a waterfall falling in front of 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 the the. Uh, it's a part of the uh, of the monument, and so you walk through like the water, like when you walk through the waters in front of you, and it's like a wading pool. You can toss money in, mm. and and then as you walk, you see Dr. King's um, uh, different sayings of his um, translated into different languages, like a whole lot of different languages, and oh. you can actually touch the wall because it's marble. 
and you can seal it. So if you're blind, you can actually seal the lettering. It's really beautiful. Oh. Yeah, and then you and then when you get to the middle, you look out and it's like water pouring down in front of you. It's just really nice. Oh, nice. Yeah, so nice. you would like that when you should come visit us. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for this.